Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Professor Kevin John Heller, the University of Copenhagen Center for Military Studies. And this is the third episode of my podcast entitled Lex Ferenda, Conversations About Law and War. The first session was with Harold Coe. The second one was with Andrew Cayley. And today I'm very excited to have as my guest, um, a very impressive person and also an old friend, uh, Dr. Anna Dulidze. Uh, who is a well-known professor of international law and within her native Georgia is chairwoman of the Movement for the People, uh, a new political party, and we will come back to that later. Um, thank you so much for, for agreeing to do this, Anna. Thank you, Kevin. I, I am uh, delighted uh, to be invited as part of your show and especially to be among such distinguished uh, lineup of speakers. <laughs> well, you, you fit in very well with that distinguished lineup. So um, let's just launch into the first question. And, and a lot of the questions will be about your past because you have a, a very unique biography, but also one that is extremely relevant to the kinds of, of topics that, that this, uh, this podcast is designed to explore. Um, so let's go back kind of to the beginning. Um, as a lawyer, you focused quite heavily on international and domestic human rights law. Um, so I'm very curious what made you move initially from practice to academia, and then, and this we'll talk quite a bit about, to become Georgia's Deputy Minister of Defense. That's not a, a career path that, that everybody takes. Thank you so much for your kind words. Uh, so uh, my uh, move to academia uh, probably has uh, two conditions, was uh, determined by two conditions. Uh, structural circumstances in the first place, because um, at the time I fled Georgia, basically I had to leave Georgia as a human rights lawyer. Um, uh, we, this was determined by the change of government and by the uh, coming to power of a reformist, developmentalist government under uh, Saakashvili, uh, yet the government that had authoritarian tendencies. So it uh, became uh, increasingly hard to practice human rights law and to be a high-profile human rights lawyer in 2000s. And uh, at the time, um, with my family, we decided to leave Georgia and to stay in the United States for a, a while. I received a scholarship at NYU called Scholars at Risk. And at the same time, I realized that um, as a civil rights lawyer, there are things that I did not understand, things in politics, global politics. And uh, one of the reasons for that was that basically we advocated for a change. There were a lot of people who were supporting the cause. I knew that our, you know, our struggle was right. Uh, especially there was one campaign which uh, I led, which was related to uh, abduction and killing of a civilian by security forces. And this case got attracted a lot of public attention, a lot of public anger. But it seemed that nevertheless, um, there wasn't much change. Uh, we were, The government still maintained its uh, reputation as a, as a reformist government in the region and internationally. So I thought, okay, maybe there are some things that, although I'm a professional, some things that I don't understand. <laughs> and perhaps this move abroad, so transatlantic move, move to the United States, maybe it's a good time to learn uh, about how things work in general. And of course, <laughs> as you embark in your PhD, this it gives you ample time to read and to understand uh, how local politics work, how structures work, how geopolitics work, and sometimes even if you're beating with your head against something, and if you're, you know, if you're absolutely idealist about your objectives, the um, power dynamics do not let you fulfill your uh, goals and your dreams. So I would say I, this move was serendipitous. On, on the one hand, of course, it was a very hard uh, to take this move, but on the other hand, to start the PhD, and to be able to basically spend a couple of years thinking and reading and writing uh, was a great gift. It's a luxury for many people. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, 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 absolutely. So then, you know, the, the, the big jump, because certainly, you know, you're not the first practitioner who, who decided to kind of, you know, uh, emphasize the more intellectual aspects of law by getting a PhD, but... Um, 
an academic who then becomes, uh, you know, a deputy minister of defense. <laughs> I, I think that's a probably, you know, I don't know how many hands we need to count that, but I don't think it would be very many. Um, tell us how that came about before we, before we actually talk about what you did when you had that position. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, again, it, uh, this, uh, this was a, a dream of mine uh, to work for the country and for the government. Um, uh, this was a dream of mine as a student, as a law student. Uh, however, I had given up upon this idea because I was so critical of the previous government. Uh, so I, I did uh, used to do media interviews here and there, uh, basically uh, talking about my vision and things to change. But then, slowly, the structures did change. This is the key. So there was a change of government in 2012. So all the efforts of the human rights people and advocates ripened into political movement, into uh, political change, and there was a, a peaceful change of government, a, velvet, a rose revolution, a velvet revolution, and uh, forces running the country changed. And uh, I got a uh, suggestion, an invitation to come back and work for the, uh, for the government. And this was an invitation by the minister, a newly appointed defense minister, uh, because a lot of people also who were my comrades and my colleagues in the human rights struggle, they found themselves in the government in one way or another, in one form or another, or working closer with the government. Um, so, as an academic in Canada, of course, one has um, as a special life. I was, you know, I had fantastic colleagues, every condition to write uh, and to do research. But as we know, the opportunity to work at a political level, uh, at a ministry of such importance, is unique, and it's a window of opportunity that closes very quickly and doesn't come very often. <laughs> So it took me maybe half a day to decide that we're going to pack our life in Canada into a container <laughs> and move back to a Georgia to, to a salary, to an income which was, I don't know, one-tenth, one-tenth seriously of, of, of course, of the academic income in, in the West uh, compared to that a public servant's income in a developing country. You know. But... To me, it was, you know, as long as it was livable, as long as uh, my family, uh, it was also a, a, a very, very important decision to, for my son, who I wanted to know his roots <laughs> in Georgia. So, uh, and, and as I said, I think this, as we know, okay, this happens, this kind of peaceful political transition happens, you know, once in a decade in democratic countries, right? So it, it's not something that, you should look at uh, lightly. Uh, so this this call, I took it with a great on, honor uh, and gratitude, and came back. Interesting. <laughs> Funny how the, the, yeah. these things you said you just <laughs> okay, how things work huge out. <laughs> things in our lives are, are, as you said, completely serendipitous, and, and all of a sudden you go off in a completely different direction. Um, okay, so you find yourself now working, uh, you know, um, in, in the ministry. And, and I'm, I'm very curious, you know, someone who was explicitly a human rights lawyer, someone who is involved, you know, um, in being very critical of the, the previous government, someone who left the country because of the previous government. How were you received initially? You know, um, I, I'm, I, I want to get to the, the aspect of, of being a woman in the ministry, but just I'm really interested in what it was like to be a human rights lawyer, finding yourself the deputy minister of defense. And, and, and was there skepticism of you from other people in the ministry and, and even more so from, from members of the armed forces that you had to, to deal with every day? Yes, uh, I, was, uh, I was quite intimidated <laughs> initially. Um, gender is definitely part of this um, also because, um, you know, working within the very quite strict hierarchical structure of government. This is uh, something that everybody who is an activist or uh, comes from NGO or civil society uh, probably has trouble with, is you you are more or less independent, you have your opinions and so on and so forth, and uh, individual, you act individualistically, uh, you have more agency, and then here you are, you are moved into a hierarchical structure, and 
one of the most sort of hierarchical structures that are out there um, as a Ministry of Defense. But uh, so so there there was a quite a transition and a great learning curve, I would say, <laughs> for me. Uh, from the human rights perspective, it's much less issues because, um, uh, as opposed to other ministries, defense and army is a little bit outside of the political life in Georgia specifically. I don't know how they're perceived in other countries, but in Georgia, I mean, uh, defense and army is understood to be a little bit above, so supra-political. Uh, and it's not a, a good tone for politicians to attack the army. Some, somehow they're considered to be basically more state-related. Of course, it's very naive to say that they're beyond politics. No, nothing is beyond politics, as we know. But but they're not part of daily political struggles, uh, right? Uh, uh, and I think if I was a yeah, I think it's, I, I don't know how it works in other countries, but if I was, uh, if I had moved to, let's say, police, or Ministry of the Interior or Security Forces. These are the agencies which are implicated in various human rights-related claims in Georgia specifically, always, routinely. When you were practicing then, so you, you, your, when you were, your human rights cases didn't involve so much military issues as more- At all, political at all. Okay, that, that certainly makes some sense. Well then, so what about, what about the reverse? Like I, I've noticed, you know, <laughs> Um, I, I often just say I'm a professor of international law security at the University of Copenhagen, but I am actually at the University of Copenhagen Center for Military Studies. And people see Center for Military Studies and they think, oh, I'm some, you know, kind of right wing uh, apologist for, you know, military excesses when I don't think there's anyone who's particularly conservative in my center. We just happen to study the military. Um, so I'm curious. Did your relationship with anyone in the human rights community or in civil society change when you kind of, you know, you became the man, you know, excuse the, the, the gendered expression, but now you're actually part of a Ministry of Defense as a former human rights lawyer. I, I can imagine that, that there could be skepticism going the other direction as well. I would think so. I, I, I haven't had the opportunity to have uh, you know, frank discussions with my, for, with my colleagues or friends, uh, definitely internally in the country, definitely, uh, uh, because it seems to be that, uh, you know, uh, people cling to their uh, work-related identities and they become very, very important to them. And I think for local NGO and human rights community, they, they could have become immediately suspicious of somebody working for the government in general. <laughs> so not defense specifically, but for a lot of for for people who are who have worked all their life in in NGOs, non-governmental organizations, uh, immediately, you know, they have this lens that if you're working for the government, uh, they must be suspicious of you. And I think it's this 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 is related to the lack of trust generally that exists between the you know, public civil society and the government uh, caused by historical context, you know, Russian post-Soviet uh, historical context. But globally speaking, I, I didn't have a chance to, to speak, uh, to engage with my colleagues, you know, Human Rights Watch or other international organizations. Well, then let me ask you about the, the gender aspect, because, you know, I, um, you know, I, I'm so struck, and I wish in some ways this was a this was actually a, a webcast, so I, I could show the photos. But there's so many amazing photos of you, you know, being not only the only woman in the room, but you know, you in a you know kind of a, a striking red dress, <laughs> surround or a red red suit, uh, surrounded by a bunch of older white men in um, you know in their actual uniforms. Um, and so I'm curious, you know. I don't know very much about, you know, gender politics and gender dynamics in Georgia, but you would have certainly been outside of the norm with, in terms of ministers that, that the military would have dealt with. And I'm, I'm curious to know how the reaction to you was shaped, not only by your being a kind of a human rights outsider, but also by being a, a woman in a very masculine environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would, I would say that this uh, journey was much more, much, much more easy or easier uh, than expected. 
So I think the, the tension and my anticipation of how things would work out was much higher <laughs> than actually what happened. And I have an explanation of this. Not that there were not hurdles. And I can tell you the lots of really funny stories about hierarchy and perceiving me as their boss in a minute. But in general, I think um, this is related to the fact that it's a highly hierarchical structure. And... I don't know how it is, and I'm sure there are issues, and after I've dealt with this with uh, women in the military in Georgia, for example, who are segmented in particular areas and professions, not in the combat and battlefield, but you know, in other areas, and how it works if you're not high in the ranks. I think for in my case, because I was a political appointee, I think the uh, the uh, maybe disagreement and maybe lack of engagement. There were it was much more subtle uh, than uh, than uh, blatant, because it's a very strict hierarchy. And the deputy minister is a deputy minister, and the decree of the deputy minister is a, is a decree. Maybe emotional perceptions also based on culture. You know they are, they exist, of course, <laughs> but. But but there were no sort blatant cases of uh, disagreement or disorder or any other things. Just because hierarchy, in that case, you know, uh, was in my. It language. makes sense, but it's also kind of yeah. It's still remarkable. So so, so tell us the tell us a funny story. Oh, fi- really funny story. So one day, for example, we we're, we're, there were tons of examples when oh, I realized where, for example, uh, something that I call uh, the walk. You know uh, where, where gender plays a role when you when in military they usually walk very fast and very very determined in groups when they walk for example within a base or from a base to a base and how I was lagging behind as a woman <laughs> trying and I think later on I moved to the president's office and again it was the same because it was a you know just mostly men around me and so when we were walking as part of a delegation somewhere usually I was I was the one walking walking, lagging behind the group <laughs> because I just cannot walk as fast unless I would be running. So this is a kind of like gender-related dimension. Another one, heels, how when you wear, you know, you wear heels as a, as a woman on work meetings and then, but then during the midday you want to visit a military base which there is no asphalt, there is no road, paved roads and suddenly you realize, okay, there's a completely different dress code you cannot walk around as you walk at the regular business meeting. And once we were visiting, I was visiting a military base, and um, we went in, and uh, suddenly the base uh, was um, basically uh, the media, the journalists wanted to come and film something at the base. And the head of the military base, he was a little bit puzzled, you know, because the military, the media, the request from the media, they go through a specific procedure and rank and they're usually are uneasy about <laughs> such spontaneous requests from the media and I'm there and the journalists are like okay they want to come in and, and this head of the base is kind of puzzled he's thinking and he's t- looking at me and he's like what should I do and I said well you let them in and uh, he was like well, wait a minute I have to call my boss and I'm like I'm your boss <laughs> And it took just one second. He was like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> but, you know, it, there was a process for him to realize, well, actually, you know, I'm his boss. <laughs> I think it would be different if it was, you know, a typical, a typical military superior or a political <laughs> head. But, uh, yeah, so things like this happened routinely. Um, but I think the key was that... Uh, uh, was that uh, the? Uh, it eventually took some time, maybe months or two, for this strange thing, uh, as having we, le- women in political leadership, uh, for the strange thing to be accepted. Hmm. Did you ever get any? I mean, what about the? I mean, largely because of you, I, I gave you know I had the opportunity to give a bunch of lectures at various kind of parts of the the Georgian military, and I was struck by how many women soldiers there were, even among the officers. And, and what were their reaction to you? Were they was it was it? I mean, did they perceive it as a good thing that I'll you know, have a very high ranking woman inside the ministry? Did it 
was it just hierarchy and so they didn't even pay attention to your gender? I'm, I'm curious about that as well. Um, yes, uh, so, so the, the way gender issue, issues uh, look at the Georgian military so far, or, or when we arrived, when I worked there, was the following, that we have more uh, females working in the civilian section of the ministry than males, actually. More than 50% of civilians, so the political civilian branch, are female. And my explanation, absolutely, it's a hypothesis, and somebody has to write something good about this, is a lot of this is related to um, NATO and internationalization of the ministry and the traditional uh, emphasis of learning languages for women during upbringing in Georgia. So it's very, it's an absolutely, you know, hypothetical claim. But so, so most, a, a lot of uh, women you can see in the Georgian ministry have worked in you know, NATO, International Relations Department, uh, departments related to uh, anything that has to do with programs that have an international component, educational programs. Georgia gets a lot of educational uh, programs from uh, NATO and NATO-related countries. So, but the case is not the same in the military, on the military side. Uh, we have uh, women officers, and we will have more now, um, since one of the reforms that, where I played part, uh, in fact. But uh, most of the women end up working in the medical department, medical unit. Yes, so, and I think it happens by default uh, that there are women there, so it adds more women and and. and Unfortunately, of course, as is usual, it's not very easy for women to talk about what kind of hurdles and obstacles they come across when they join service. Uh, but I will tell you one example uh, where, uh, so one of the things, one of the reforms that we did is to open up military school for women and girls. So just by default, when the military school was established, and that's basically the only military high school hyper-prestigious, full scholarship that feeds into the military academy in Georgia, and then uh, the one that graduates officers, right? So by default, when the military school was established, it was only for males. (laughs) Yeah, and it took us to start, uh, so the team of the ministry and me, uh, to start the conversation to notice, well, wait a minute, why do we have only boys in the school? And uh, of course, initially, all sorts of explanations were given why it would be not possible to admit women, uh, why it would be hard, acceptance, uh, a lot of uh, attention uh, paid to that there would be cultural prejudices, for example, that Georgian fathers would not let their daughters go to military school. All of that turned out to be not true. (laughs) This is why science is important, why your Institute of Military Studies is important, why these attitudes have to be checked empirically. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right? So this turned out to be not true, and we have a great record of women graduates, women snipers, young girls who you know want to become snipers. They're, and <laughs> a, yeah. a, a traditional goal of, of young young kids. <laughs> women <everywhere>. in Georgia. <laughs> traditional Mom, Georgia. I want to grow up to be a sniper. <laughs> Imagine. Who would who would have thought of that? <laughs> Was there but, I'm, I'm yeah. curious, like I mean, you you don't have a military background, and and, and did that did that have any effect in, in the way that you're perceived? I've noticed in other countries there is a you know a, a kind of a natural bond between quote you know civilian political appointees who have a military background and ones that don't in dealing with the soldiers because you know they're kind of one of them, um, or did they just kind of accept your expertise and you were the deputy minister and it was a hierarchy and and they listened to you? No, no, certainly not. Certainly don't. I think in every environment, every environment, you need to establish your identity, your place. So here too, I think uh, a part of uh, a part of it was that I was myself quite self-conscious, and uh, then uh, so I I also uh, chose to. Uh, navigate towards those areas and issues where I thought I could bring competence. 
in terms of portfolio, I think if I had a purely, let's say, a logistics assignment as a deputy minister doing logistics or military infrastructure, I would not have accepted this job, no way. I knew that this would be, I would be tasked with uh, doing military education and uh, overseeing military education, rehabilitation, and international relations from the very beginning. So each, each deputy minister has a portfolio. And, and uh, you know, we, we had a deputy minister who was responsible, for instance, for finance. And, uh, you know, we, we had our own uh, discussions and kind of uh, collegial conflicts <laughs> because everyone who has their portfolio tries to, you know, advance their, their own uh, agenda or their own people, their own, uh, yeah, advoc- their own uh, things that they consider are right from the perspective of their portfolio. So I was, uh, as I was supervising uh, military hospital, military education system, and making it more merit-based, uh, right? Uh, that's an unbelievable, that's a huge perk, basically, that we get, is that uh, Georgian officers get to study in the best educational institutions abroad, Defense University, Sandhurst, West Point, we get scholarships, and there's cutthroat competition for this uh, scholarships because also they advance your imagine. career. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> did, did you deal with many, I mean, how, how much did international law play a role in your, in your day-to-day work as a minister? Day-to-day work, I wouldn't say. We had um, a couple of, uh, so ongoing working relation with uh, uh, Red Cross uh, and uh, their efforts to disseminate uh, humanitarian law. Uh, and so uh, our support was given uh, for them to uh, supply their curriculum, uh, to help us and develop syllabi for teaching to the uh, cadets. Uh, also, uh, Red Cross had an, uh, has an agenda of recovering uh, disappeared persons from conflicts uh, Judge Georgia underwent, and for this they uh, require support from the Ministry of Defense. And certainly we were uh, absolutely cooperative with uh, ICC. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I, I, I definitely want to come back and talk to you more. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I, w- I would say I would say this were this were more or less the areas where um, I had to play a hand in um, in terms of international law. Interesting. So then, okay, so well, let's kind of fast forward a little bit then. And um, what was, how did the transition to, to being, you know, really the top lawyer for the, the president of Georgia come about and moving outside the ministry into more of the, as you said, the more kind of directly political parts of government? Yeah, for instance, uh, you know, when, when uh, for example, an uh, emergency happens, right, in a country, uh, most people don't have to realize and they don't realize how much legal work takes place basically behind every act of government <laughs> when you are yeah i mean uh, some some you know some government uh, agency needs to move its uh, uh, comp- components from place a to place b there are a lot of lawyers working behind the scenes to make this happen <laughs> And when you're inside the government legal branch, legal office, you realize that you know part of it is physical work and political will, and the other part of it is actual legal work and passing all sorts of decrees in time to make it happen. So I worked um, uh, in initially with the president's office because we had a number of emergencies and according to Georgian constitution, in order to get the army involved in national emergency, you need a presidential decree. It cannot happen just, you know, uh, it's a security issue, army by default cannot be involved in internal matters unless there's a nationwide disaster or an emergency. And that was the time a couple of military exercises where we had the president's office, who is the commander in chief? of the army and the Ministry of Defense involved. Uh, And then we had a couple of instances when I used to work with the president's office uh, to to engage the army in some of the the relief efforts. 
and make sure the legal side of it was okay, because it's not a light matter. You do this thing without the presidential decree, you, you are subject to criminal prosecution. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not you're not moving boxes in the office, <laughs> right? So, uh, so uh, this is the time when kind of I got to know the team of uh, the president, who was the opposition figure at the time when I was also a human rights lawyer, right? Uh, ten years, ten years before, approximately. Uh, so first, I got a uh, suggestion and offer to stand as to be a candidate for Supreme Court, and that was the most successful failure, as I call it, <laughs> because <laughs> I failed successfully at this bid. Um, of course, the political circumstances, which I did not understand at that time, the political circumstances were as such that the parliament would not appoint the candidates presented by that president specifically. You know, like in the U.S. context, lame duck president, right? Uh, so I, I did agree to be the candidate. We went through the whole circuit of speeches, confirmation hearings. That was, I went five times to, pre, to pre present in the parliament, five times. And they would adjourn each time because the political decision wasn't taken. And then, uh, so that failed. <laughs> you know, no, those that knew politics knew how this would work. Yeah. And if you were an idealist person, not part of any political party, but you thought where you worked for the government and you wanted to work for the country, you know, as, as was I at the time, I was thinking, okay, they will look at my credentials and... No, why, why not? Uh, but in fact, of course, every, uh, all of that was about you know, power, <laughs> power uh, uh, distribution and redistribution. And after that, uh, I was asked to join the uh, president's office as his legal secretary, as his legal officer, and I agreed to that. And, and what did you what did you focus on when in, in the two years that you worked in, in that capacity? Were there military issues? Were there international law issues? Or was it, again, kind of more internal issues? I, well, all of, uh, well, two dimensions. There was definitely an international law and international relations dimension because, again, the president, and that was super interesting for me because, again, the president was uh, and is by their office uh, uh, chief representative of the country in international relations. And Georgia, as a small country, has to be super active. This is, uh, you know, we don't get any spotlight for granted. That any spotlight that we get internationally for granted, we have to struggle as as small countries. <laughs> we have to, for for any uh, any moment that you are on the international agenda in a positive sense. Of okay, of course, I mean negatively, you can you can be. Uh, if you have conflict or war or whatever, but positively, so you have to work really, really hard. So uh, from the international, I was on the presidential team for domestic as well as international delegations, uh, negotiations, bilateral meetings. Uh, so that was absolutely lucky, and that was a great learning opportunity because I met some some remarkable people, including uh, uh, the president of Switzerland, uh, who was a woman at the time. And uh, uh, and internally, this was uh, quite an uphill battle because the president would veto many uh, many laws. Actually, we presented to the parliament record number of vetoes on draft laws. That's six uh, in two years. Uh, basically, he would yeah <laughs> he wouldn't he wouldn't sign laws that he thought were either undemocratic or were concentrating power. So I had to go to the parliament and present his veto. Uh, because, yes, because the ruling party had the majority, they would still overcome the veto. But at least we got uh, you know, public exposure to the issues that we were advocating. For example, judiciary reform. I don't remember, I don't think we did anything related to military. As I said, military is, 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 is kind of, it, it would take really, really serious issue for the military to be embroiled in political debate or political discourse. 
I mean, it kind of in my own career until relatively recently with the ICC, I kind of always resisted being part of any international organization, you know, much less a government. And, and part of that is precisely, you know, I, I, I kind of like my, my, my freedom of thought and freedom of speech and, and nobody tells me what to say and to think. I mean, it, it kind of at any point in, in, in your career in government, at the ministry and the president's office, I mean, it sounds like you would have to advocate for things that you didn't necessarily agree with. And I, I, I'm just, I, I'm curious what that was like, having had so much of the, the freedom when you were a, a human rights lawyer and an academic to, to truly say what you, what you thought. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's a, that's a big dilemma and probably the, big tra- the biggest uh, trade-off of working for government. Uh, and I would say that a lot of people who who have trouble, who do not like to join, uh, you know, public office, that's probably one of the reasons why they abstain abstain themselves from doing so. Uh, especially, we have a big problem in, of attracting talent to public service in developing countries, because also, uh, you know, the remuneration, the material conditions are not so good, and plus. You know, you attract, you want to attract people to situations where sometimes you know they are, their opinion will not triumph and something else will be done, <laughs> uh, and and they are ca- exactly they they cannot say what they think they cannot say it pu- about it publicly. I think it's a continuum from uh, the way I I look at it. I, I if there were things that I vehemently disagreed with, it would take me a second probably to decide to leave. It would be very easy for me to for me to say, and luckily, you know, I had the, I had that freedom to say, okay, you know, I I strongly and openly disagree with that move, with that decision, and I would resign. That wouldn't be a problem uh, at all. Actually, later on, uh, uh, in the High Council of Justice, when uh, I was again at the next. You know, government office. That was uh, when I when I came to the conclusion. Okay, I did reach a glass ceiling, and it's time for me to leave public office and do something else. Do kind of, yeah. But to uh, but uh, for for issues where you have an opinion, uh, but you know, it's not a life and death question. It's not a question of also of your integrity. I think that it's not a life. Life and death is too strong. A question that, com- an issue that compromises your integrity. Uh, if it's an issue like that, you can always just withdraw. Say no, if you work in a democracy, of course. I mean, if you, yeah, if, if not, then there are other problems. But in a democracy, you just resign and do other things. But uh, I don't think, so I don't think I've achieved a, I've reached a, an issue where I would say I would have come to the question of such a such a strong such a decision such a serious decision. Before that, on on more mundane routine matters, okay, you just uh, learn that you know there are some opinions that the world needs to hear, and there are some opinions the world doesn't need to hear. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. That's yeah, really interesting. Um. Okay, so let me ask, because I, I want to kind of, when we get to the conclusion, I want to ask you uh, about politics again. But um, as you said, you know, you were very involved in the, in the ICC um, investigation as well. Um, and so, you know, the ICC has been investigating, as you know, um, in Georgia since 2016, um, crimes committed by Russians, Georgians, and South Ossetian militaries. But it, they only issued their first uh, arrest warrants a few months ago. Um, why do you think it took so long? And, and, and what was, I mean, and, and what were your reactions to the initiation of the investigation? And again, anything that you're, that you're comfortable sharing, um, I, I think our, our readers would be, our listeners would be very interested. Yes, we were caught up with, uh, uh, with ICC. And I think it's important for, uh, for internationals and, uh, and people who work at these institutions to understand that we were, caught up in this uh, dilemma. So on the one hand, Georgia's position is that it supports international law and international institutions. Again, as a small state's international order, especially with with uh, Russia as its neighbor, <laughs> the international order is uh, needs to be strengthened, 
international institutions are need to exist. They have to be strong because you know they they monitor, facilitate uh, a, a fair play in the international realm. This is the state position and has been. So we that's why we joined Rome Statute. We joined all other WTO, all other institutions. <laughs> This is the kind of underlying philosophy and uh, of the policy position. So, on the one hand, uh, we were we had the agenda of advocating for ICC and supporting ICC. But on the other hand, understanding, especially as an international lawyer, that ICC cannot deliver on the expectations of people. It just cannot institutionally. You were, you, we were caught up in this dilemma. So on the one hand, in your public messaging, you have to say, you know, you have to support ICC, support its efficiency, support its actions, support the investigation. On the other hand, somehow try to not to increase the expectation of people to the extent that it will then lead to frustration. It's lit, I don't know if it's a, if it's a, pos, if it's a realistic task. <laughs> because what people, when they have been, you know, when they have been wronged, to this extent, they want justice, efficient justice, quick justice, and they want some kind of material uh, remedies, right? Restitution. And if you know about international institutions and ICCs, ICC as well, we know like ICC cannot, with subsidiarity, with uh, with its institutional design, cannot deliver these things, right? Uh, it can deliver some, but but it cannot deliver others. Uh, so so you have to like explain both at the same time, which is very hard. With uh, with this investigation, uh, I think uh, Russia, uh, maybe political context uh, prior to Ukraine. I most people in Georgia uh, uh, connect intellectually uh, connect. The uh, ICC's, uh, you know, the course ICC has taken, the closing of the investigation or jo- on Georgia, uh, uh, and uh, Ukrainian situation. Somehow they connect the two things together. That in in a way Russia's uh, now aggression towards Ukraine basically gave an impetus to uh, ICC to take the next step, which perhaps it wouldn't otherwise. That's that's what I've read from. Yeah. So, barring the invasion, they, they, you don't think they, they would have even got to the point of of the three arrest warrants? Well, what I have, what I have uh, come across the kind of uh, you know public uh, discussions on this is that it gave, gave an emphasis because they want to uh, they want to show now the uh, the credibility and the efficiency in perhaps in relation to Ukraine, which again will be hard because of Russia, but. And because of that, they have to show some uh, you know, outcomes and outputs in relation to Georgia. But perhaps it's you know it's just an absolute uh, absolute coincidence. <laughs> the the <laughs> timeline of these two things, yeah, it could be. Well, I mean, Georgia's also kind of become, you know, one of the first two examples of the office of the prosecutor kind of formally you know, closing. An investigation because you know they just I think just a week or two ago announced that there there won't be any um, investigations beyond the initial three arrest warrants. I mean, what what do you think of that, and and what do you think might happen with the investigation? There's obviously some structural limitations to their ability to pursue the warrants against the South Ossetian um, suspects. So what what happens now, and and how has that decision to 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 close the investigation beyond what's already been announced? Uh, been received in Georgia? In fact, it has been received, so from the one perspective, very positively. Because of the wording of the statement, it was widely covered, translated, transcribed, told on the media. Uh, and uh, because uh, the nature of the prosecutions and the kinds of individuals that uh, that uh, are prosecuted. It was understood in the Georgian media that uh, you know they are the culprits, and therefore they this yeah the suspicion that perhaps Georgians also might have committed some crimes. This suspicion has been absolved. So this was understood as 
uh, very positively uh, from wide public, all sorts of media, pro-government opposition. It was interpreted in the context of it could be possible that Georgians were prosecuted because of the initial wording uh, on all sides were investigated, and that with this prosecution, kind of the Georgian uh, side was abs- was in a way recognized as having not committed the kinds of crimes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I won't ask you to, to to comment on whether that is a fair interpretation or not. But it's it, it's interesting that, that that that's the message that was that was taken away from that. Do, do you think anything will happen with the with the three arrest warrants, or do you think it's going to be another example of you know the the, the the long arc of justice that if anything happens it will be many years down the road yeah on on the yeah just to recap on the closing of investigation i was observing how this was taken in an absolutely different direction <laughs> and how international law you know sometimes is domesticated in of course it's domesticated it's brought domestically in a local political context which uh, which has its own uh, issues and grievances and points of weakness. <laughs> so that was very interesting. With with these prosecutions, uh, of course, I'm quite skeptical for structural reasons. Um, and I think that because it's not only about Georgia or these uh, South Ossetian officials or uh, but that are charged or are are being prosecuted, but more it raises a more structural issue with uh, Russia or uh, the players that are not participating in the ICC system. Yeah. So uh, physically, I think um, I'm glad it's there. It ha- it will have its own uh, its own uh, moral and emotional power. I think it does. I, I'm a firm believer that it does. But will it go further than this? Well, I, I th- yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a I think it's a very important point. I mean, critics of the ICC often judge it solely on the basis of whether you know uh, an arrest warrant can be executed and a, a suspect can be prosecuted and of course it is a court and that is ultimately its function but at the same time there is symbolic value to having charges hanging over the head of certain people and uh, Omar al-Bashir I think being you know a, a perfectly good example of that um great well I want to end with you know um the kind of the next phase <laughs> of your career um you know, in May of last year, or I guess, no, sorry, 2021, uh, you founded your own political party for the people, the movement, as you described it. Um, and a recent survey found that you are, in fact, now the most popular opposition figure in Georgia. Um, tell me, you know, kind of in conclusion about, you know, why did you find found your own political party? And, and you know, what do you hope to accomplish politically? What do you hope to accomplish in terms of your own you know, kind of, you're still very young. You have a lot of time ahead of you. Uh, your own kind of next stage of your career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think... Uh, In other words, do you want to be president of Georgia? <laughs> that's yeah, that's a real question. Yeah, I think uh, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for uh, other and uh, new new challenges. And uh, I think the I think the, the mission is to to have a, a serious impact on the life of the country in the positive sense. So some of the ideas that I have, and that was my real, my realization, I think, why I took the step, is uh, some of the ideas that uh, I have uh, are possible and have been realized as part of the existing structures. But for other ideas and other things, you, uh, you, know, you have to try to change the structures themselves. And for that, you have to be in a political party, part of a coalition, member of a party, whatever. But basically, you have to take, uh, you have to take a shot at the game itself. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and it is rather, I would say, so far it's been. I mean, there are some 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 great things in this, but also it's very uncomfortable. <laughs> and the, it, there there are lots of uncomfortable things in this, and how it's done, uh, and. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's worth a shot. So um, most recently, uh, and I, I'm quite fascinated by this, um, in May 2021, you founded your own political party, the one mentioned earlier, For the People. Uh, and a recent survey found that you are now the most popular opposition figure in Georgia. Um, what do you hope to accomplish in politics? And, and I'm also really interested, how does one 
start a political party. As an American, it's kind of inconceivable, the idea that one could found a new political party, but you know, um, in Georgian politics, it seems to be something that one can achieve. Um, so, so tell us, uh, how did you come about this idea and where do you hope it will lead? Um, yes, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I agree. In some context, uh, especially in uh, established democracies, uh, it's uh, probably inconceivable or, or much, much harder to establish a party, and it seems like an impossible task. In newer democracies, it's, uh, well, it's not easy, but definitely institutionally it's easier and legally. Um, uh, but uh, so I thought about this carefully at the time. And I realized that, okay, your, your dreams and ambitions and mission as an individual can be realized in different contexts with different means to different extent, okay? So some of the things that I wanted were realized, implemented in different settings. Uh, uh, for example, I had this, as an, as an activist, I had this campaign um, in relation to uh, be, you would be surprised, safe swimming, uh, basically. I, I noticed, yeah, it, basic security issue. I noticed a lot of kids would die in some areas because local self-governments were not paying attention to safety of swimming areas, as in uh, many countries, you know, these areas are fenced off, there are warning signs. So a basic, basic security issue, safety issue. So this, this was, uh, I, I'm pretty happy about this uh, campaign because it brought serious results. Some very dangerous areas were fenced off in Tbilisi Sea. So that makes me happy on a daily basis. But some for other things, sort of bigger mission and bigger ideas, you need uh, to take a shot at the rules of the game, at the established structures, uh, power structures. And, and being in politics or close to politics is one of the means to do it or maybe the most serious means. <laughs> and, and, and it's as powerful as it is difficult, both at the end, of, of course, you know, there's a lot of power and a lot of impact and influence involved, but the road is, has been quite difficult and a great learning opportunity for me, <laughs> something that I really like. And where do you think it will lead? Where do you hope it will lead? Well, I, 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 hope, to have, I hope to have a say in parliamentary politics. Does, it, doesn't, it doesn't really matter whether it's, you know, how it looks, but I hope to have a say in promoting policy-making agenda. This is what we need right now. Lots of laws in different directions, whether fighting inflation or finishing with education reform. And I hope to, I hope to be, uh, you know, playing a role in pushing this agenda. Well, I, I don't get to vote, unfortunately, but um, if, I, if I did, I would have very little trouble uh, casting my ballot for you. I mean, you obviously bring just such an incredible wealth Thank you. <laughs> of experience and diverse experience to the job. So I, I, I can understand why you have become so popular so quickly. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. Um, it's been fascinating. Um, Dr. Ana Delice, our third guest, and hopefully um, this podcast will be widely disseminated and and listened to not only by people you know in the west but, but hopefully at least by some in your own country as well so thank you again and we really appreciate it thank you so much thank you